Hello, welcome back to Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano, and we are talking about a Thanos story this time, which means we have back Brian. What's Hello. up, Brian? Uh, nothing much, nothing much. Uh, social distancing, uh, but we are doing this via Skype, like uh, proper, proper uh, quarantine podcasters. Exactly, yes. We're all prepared for this already. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This is like, well, how is this going to change how we do what we do? Um, not at all, really. In no way, shape, <laughs> or form. It's like, I'm doing it from home anyway. All right, perfect. Exactly. I'm at home, too. Exactly. Exactly. It's all good. All good. We have a, a weird little one. So is this like a mini episode we're, we're, we're uh, letting the people in for here? Well, it's a shorter one, but I'm still going to do a Friends and Enemies segment at the end. So Okay. That might take up more more time than the uh, actual issue does. Okay, fair enough. Because we are talking about a five-page Thanos and Drax story Mm -hmm. that was a backup in Logan's Run, number six. Yes, indeed. Now, if I'm trying to remember, was Logan's Run, number six, the last issue of that series? Seven. Uh, Okay, so it was the penultimate episode. But six, apparent, according to what I'm seeing on the uh, comics.org, was mm-hmm. the first issue to uh, to take place after the movie. So issues one through five was a adaption of the movie, and then six and seven was an original story. And then and then, uh, and then I guess it got uh, I guess it got canceled on account of uh, low sales or something. Something. Well, not yeah. that this has not that the story we're covering has anything to do with Logan's Run, which begs the question: Why is it in there? I don't know. So let's, well, first of all, I guess we might, we do have a few things to cover, actually. Uh, yes. What is Logan's Run? Because someone might be listening going, what the hell are you talking about? What yeah, movie? I, I remember. I remember. There was even a TV series, which I was actually aware of the TV series before I was aware of the movie. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. there was a TV show. Yeah, it was, it like the comic book, it was, like, I'm guessing the movie must have been, like, this giant hit because it spawned a comic book series that did not survive, and it spawned a television series which did not survive. It was very, I remember the TV series because it was around, like, when I was five or six in the late 70s, and it was, um, it felt very much like post-Star Wars television sci-fi like it wasn't quite as spacey oriented as Battlestar Galactica or Buck Rogers in the 25th century which are the two most notorious examples of television trying to cash in on the popularity of Star Wars but uh it did have that feel production wise it feels like late 70s television sci-fi which makes sense because it was yeah no exactly (laughs) exactly exactly but the but feel Logan's of it is run, what I remember more than anything else. Yeah. So Logan's run was, and I just looked this part up and I was actually surprised at the year. Mm-hmm. I thought this was an after Star Wars thing. This came out before Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So this is a 1976 sci-fi movie, Logan's run. I'm pretty sure it was based on a novel or a short story at least. Okay. About a futuristic society where basically everyone had like a little jewel in the palm of one of their hands and it changed colors. You aged. And once I got it, I think to red, it was cause you were like 30 and basically you went to a thing they called carousel, which was supposed to be like, uh, what they believe was reincarnation, but really just killed you. Mm-hmm. And they had people called Sa- the police were called Sandmen who were around to chase people who tried to run when they became 30 cause they didn't want to die. And the story is about one of the Sandmen who is, uh, runs when he's 30. 
and what he finds out about the world when he runs. Okay. Interesting concept. Yeah, no, it was very, it was very uh, dystopian, very new wave of science fiction, which was a big deal in the 60s. I just looked it up, and you're right. It did originate as a novel. Uh, it was written by two men, William Nolan and George Clayton Johnson, published in 1967, which was the height of the psychedelic, what they call the new wave of science fiction um, that was using, you know, more societal concepts, more dystopian sort of ideas, uh, very much Vietnam era, very much, uh, hey, you know, um, we're young, hip people who are very concerned about everything that troubles us in the world. So that's what we're going to write science fiction about rather than, you know, zippy space cowboys and um, air cars and jetpacks. We're going to write science fiction uh, about the things that trouble us about the world we live in. And this sort of thing about the man sort of keeping the young people down was very much a part of that feel. So this is very late 60s, and I'm sure when they turned it into the movie in the 70s, it got a little bit of a translation into that uh, uh, decade, but not probably didn't have to do too much to it. And the movie, I mean, the movie's not bad, but it is definitely, you look at that and you go, this was made in the 70s. There is no way around that. No, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. The style, Absolutely. the haircut, the hair, the hairstyles, the clothes, everything. Uh, the fact that Farrah Fawcett's in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's all a 70s. So Marvel did a lot of uh, comic adaptions. I mean, sorry, mm-hmm. adaptions of movies and TV shows in the 70s, as I'm sure you know, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, besides Star Wars and Logan's Run, there was what? Uh, Man from Atlantis. Yeah, Godzilla. They did, they, did a, they did a Battlestar Galactica one for a while, I think. Uh-huh. And also, um, they did a 2112 series. Well, Jack Kirby did a 2112 series. Uh, not 2112. God, I'm such a nerd. 2001. Um, 2001 series. Uh, <laughs> uh, brain, all motion running together. Yeah, they did a 2001 series that wound up being this sort of weird, independent Jack Kirby thing, post-Fourth World thing that is most memorable these days for introducing us to Aaron Stack, the Machine Man. Yeah, so it's actually somewhat in canon with Marvel, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I've read a couple issues of that. They're crazy. It's basically just Jack kind of taking the idea of, like, I'm going to do whatever story I want, and I'm going to throw a monolith in there that has a reason why. Mm-hmm. Good enough. Although I understand the the Treasury edition of 2001 was an actual, like, more or less adaption of the movie. It was the I'm series curious. that just took place afterwards. Yeah, I'm curious as to how uh, Arthur C. Clarke felt about that. Or Kubrick. Or Kubrick, or Kubrick, true, true. But anyway, point is, Logan's Run was a miniseries adaptation that got a little bit of an extension, but I guess it didn't do as well as Marvel hoped. And uh, I mean, the whole comic industry was a little was was getting a little over ambitious at that time. Um, I was just made aware of the existence of a uh, of the DC implosion which happened in, a year later in 1978. And that mm-hmm. was another example of uh, the 1970s mainstream comic book industry overestimating the health of its market and oversaturating, uh, getting getting uh, a little too ambitious and having to correct themselves shortly thereafter. Yeah, there. I believe that has something also to do, there's also part of it was uh, paper shortage. Mm. And I know Marvel had a mini implosion as well, not as big as DC's, but mm-hmm. they had one as well. There's also, by the way, if anyone's curious about either of these two topics, 
go to tomorrows.com. There is a great book. I haven't read it yet, but pretty much every book from Tomorrows has been great. So I'm going to go out on a limb and assume it will be too. Uh, about the DC implosion. Ah, cool. And also, if you're interested in what we were talking about a minute ago about all those adaptions that Marvel did of movies and stuff, the podcast Comic Book Time Machine. There's three guys who do it, and what they do is they'll do group episodes, and then they also have their own individual episodes where they talk about whatever you know their own topics. Ben Avery, who's one of them, his topic is covering Marvel's 1970s adaptions. Cool. So he's doing Star Wars, Godzilla, Man from Atlantis, uh, The Human Fly. Wow. Remember that one? Because remember, that was a quote-unquote real person. Mm-hmm. So all that. So if anyone's more interested in, and obviously he'll be doing Logan's Run too. So if anyone's interested in hearing more about the Marvel's, you know, adaptions of movies and TV shows, go check out Comic Book Time Machine. Mm-hmm. And just to point out, I'm finally getting a look. Um, I uh, took in this story, uh, the story we're about to do, which we'll get back to why we're doing all this talk about 1970s movie adaptations and 1960s new wave science fiction novels, etc., etc., etc. Why we're covering this in such depth here on Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, because for some reason they stuck this Thanos story, this brief Thanos story at the back of Logan's run number six. I read it in the Avengers versus Thanos trade paperback collection, which does not include the cover of the specific Logan's Run issue uh, that the story came from. So I'm finally getting a look at the cover on uh, the uh, Grand Comic Books database, Grand Comics database, comics.org. And uh, it, it, it actually has written at the top of the cover based on concepts from the MGM production which, again, I'm assuming applies to Logan's Run content and not the Thanos content. Yeah, exactly. Same here. So that's why, yeah, in Logan's Run number six, they had a five-page backup story. I'm not sure why, because I'm looking on there. No, it's seven issues. And it ran from January 77, you know, well, cover date January 1977 to July. So that's seven months. So there was no, because I was looking to see, like, was this a title that was late and maybe that's why they stuck a backup story in there. Mm-hmm. But obviously not. It was right, it was on time each month. So I don't see that. Um, I looked at, like, I didn't look at every issue, but, like, issue five, for instance, was a full comic story of Logan's run. So I don't I don't know why they stuck this backup story in there. Ah, I mean, hold on. Hold on. I have just found an uh, article on comic book resources. Oh. Just found it just now. So I'm looking at it right now. That is uh, explains exactly why it was there. Oh, go for it. Okay, so here's the story. Apparently, George Perez was the um, uh, artist on the adaptation. That's cool. Okay, so the thing that it looks like the story is that Marvel just made assumptions. They did the five issue comic, uh, the five issue adaptation of the movie, and then just continued on with the new story with the new content. And MGM said, hey, wait a minute, we didn't clear new content. And <laughs> uh, Marvel was like, well, we just sort of assumed that you were OK with it because MGM at that point had decided to do the TV series. And according to the CBR article, they were not terribly interested in having to like compete with Marvel for like the, the, the fresh Logan's run content and everything. So um, Marvel, while they were writing, producing and publishing this this extra issue, which this new original material, which came out in issues number six and seven, 
they were trying to clear it with MGM at the same time, they proved to be unable to work anything out. So Marvel did have to ultimately cancel the comic book with number seven, which cut the series off right in the middle of things. I now have the story of how it is that a weird five-page Thanos story wound up in the back of an issue of Logan's Run. Here's what it was. Okay, so, movie comes out in 1976. Now we go into 1977. Marvel, as you have already mentioned in this episode, worked out the deal to produce a comic book adaptation of the movie. And as it was, I guess, common practice at the time that you would do the comic book adaptation of the movie, and then you would just keep going with the with the with the license, right? You had the license from the MGM in this case. We we saw them do this. We would see them do the same thing with Star Wars from 20th Century Fox a little later on. They'd yeah. adapt the movie, and then they would go on and tell more original Star Wars stories. And man, that star, 70s Marvel Star Wars stuff was great, right? Oh yeah, so, I'm, up, I'm up to like issue 80 right now. I'm doing a read of that. Right. So so the point is, this was a thing that they would do. So Marvel does this with Logan's run. And once they start the original material at which starts comes out in issue six, this issue as uh, the original material. MGM's like, wait a minute, we didn't authorize any new material. We've got a TV show coming out and we don't particularly want the TV show um, having to compete with you guys for material. So um, and Marvel's like, well, maybe we can work something out. So issue six in is coming out. And MGM is fighting them on it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's already a thing. Ultimately, spoiler alert, ultimately they were not able to work anything out. And issue seven uh, is why that, like, issue seven is the last issue. It cuts off right in the middle of a story. That's, that's later on. On top of all of these shenanigans going on, um, Marvel, obviously somewhat distracted as far as this title's concerned with the ongoing uh, business with MGM, they've got a deadline crunch. Now, it would become sort of, again, common practice for them to have backup stories that would, uh, and I guess, according to the comic book resources article uh, I have now uh, read, I guess had some Logan's Run backup material in the works, but it wasn't quite ready for press yet. They needed to find something to fill issue six, uh, like something to fit into that backup feature slot in issue six. Turns out they had, sitting around in the offices, a five-page story that Mike Zeck had drawn based on a Scott Edelman script as Mike Zeck's tryout for Marvel Comics. Like, they said, hey, send us something as your sort of portfolio or as your sort of audition for us. And he sent them this. Turns out they liked it, and they wound up hiring him to do the art for Master of Kung Fu on the strength of his work in this little five-page story. But this five-page story had been his tryout. It's sitting around, and it happens to be exactly the right length. Five pages, and it happens to have Thanos and Drax the Destroyer in it, kind of spacey, kind of fitting for a sci-fi comic like Logan. Makes sense. So, boom. Uh, They said, hey, this fits the bill. It's going to see the light of day, and it got published there. It was sort of a happy accident deadline uh, emergency compensation okay that makes perfect sense because also looking at the credits the creative team changed between five and six completely right right because because it was i believe the adaptation was uh jerry conway george uh, david Perez, and klaus Je- klaus jansen 
Close it. You were right about the artist, but it was David Anthony Kraft. Oh, writing. okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, so that okay, that fits in. And I figured it was a tryout for or something for both Edelman and Zek because I'm looking at Zek's work uh, credits, mm-hmm. and now he had done a bunch of stuff for Charlton before, like mm-hmm. last year or two. But for Marvel, I'm showing the first thing of his is a backup story from Savage Short of Conan from, where is this, September 76 cover dated. Mm-hmm. And then this one, Logan's Run, which is June 77, which makes sense. It probably was, like you said, the first thing he put in. They just didn't publish it for a while. Right, right. And then after that, it's Master of Kung Fu. Right, exactly. Now, I'd never heard of this Scott Edelman fella. I'm wondering if this was a tryout for him, too. Yes, Scott um, Edelman is a writer. He has done a bunch of stuff, actually, mostly short stuff for Marvel and DC. Okay. Uh, he actually, this is not his first thing for Marvel. He's done, let's see, now I'm assuming these are backup stories. Mm-hmm. There's something for Mar- Monsters Unleashed, number 11, A Giant Size ah. Defenders, Dead of Night, Marvel Preview. Oh, that's right. Marvel Spotlight. Do you know the comic character, the Scarecrow? Not the one that fights Batman. And no. not the regular, and not the Marvel villain, who's also basically the same scarecrow, the 1970s Marvel horror character, who is a semi kind of a good guy, actually. Huh. No, I'm not familiar with this at all. Yeah, he only had about one or two appearances back then. Uh, basically, he was like the picture of a scarecrow, and he came out of the picture as like a real scarecrow and killed one or two evil people. The best way I can think of the concept is think of like early. Michael Myers or Freddy, or not Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees, when they were just, like, you didn't know anything about them. You didn't know if they had thoughts or not. They were just there killing people. Mm-hmm. But instead of them just going out and killing teenagers having sex, they were, like, all of a sudden you see them show up and, like, kill a serial killer or mm-hmm. kill a kidnapper or kill a rapist. Mm-hmm. You know? Didn't, you know, they weren't talking to people, but they were just killing bad guys. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what the Scarecrow was. Scott Elliman is one of the co-creators of that character. Interesting. Okay. Okay. He would show up later in Doctor Strange as one of the fear lords. Okay. Except okay. a fear lord who was kind of there to protect humanity. Not not a fear lord like Nightmare and the other ones who are there to torture and destroy humanity. Right. Right. But yeah, he's written some stuff from mostly short stories, from Mar- you know, shorter stories it looks like from Marvel and DC. I'm seeing House of Mystery, House of Secrets, Secrets of Haunted House. You know, Unknown Soldier, Weird War Tales. He's also, uh, let's see, he has published several, a bunch of short stories and books. He worked for the, he works for the Sci-Fi Channel. Ah. Now, let's see, I'm on his website now, about Scott Edelman. As a writer, I've published nearly 100 short stories and an eight-time Stoker Award finalist. As an editor, I worked for the Sci-Fi Channel for 13-plus years. Most recently as the editor of Blaster and have been a four-time Best Editor Hugo Award nominee. All right. So All right. he does have work. He just doesn't do a lot of stuff with comics. Right, right. He t- it, sounds, it sounds like he's really made a, more of a career in uh, fiction publishing and television. Looks like he has something to do with Omega the Unknown as well. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, he did a fill-in issue for Omega the Unknown. Ah, the 70s. Never change, 70s. Never change. So I'm going to include a link for both his and Mike Zek's pages on the show notes as well. But that's who these creators are. So it was early stuff for them. So trying out stuff back up, you know, back when they did that. I mean, I guess now Marvel makes more sense for people to actually kind of self-publish something. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot easier to do that. You can just do a digital thing and not have to worry about paying for printing costs. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, it actually makes the art on the first page of the story uh, a little a little more interesting, knowing that this is a tryout for Marvel, because I'm noting that the space background on page one, you've got in the lower left, you've got a planet with the sort of crisscross shapes all over it, which was mm-hmm. very much a thing that Jack Kirby did rather a lot of back in the day. And up at the top, you've got other shapes and multicolored spheres and things that remind me of Steve Ditko. And I I mean, I don't want to cast any aspersion on Mike Zek, who would go on to become a very um, accomplished creator who I can never speak ill of for no other reason than his involvement. Uh, He was the artist on one of the greatest Spider-Man stories ever, Craven's Last Hunt. Mm hmm. So the point uh, I'm making is, so I don't want to denigrate him or dismiss him in any way, shape or form. But given that this was a little a tryout for a company like Marvel with such a prominent artistic legacy, uh, I can't help but wondering if that was his sort of not sucking up to the company, but sort of signaling to the company. Yeah, I know what you're all about. And here, see, I can do Marvel just as well as anybody. So, you know, take me seriously kind of thing. Mm, possible makes sense if you're doing a tryout mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so let's real quick hold on a second i'm going to give you the synopsis of this very short story mm-hmm. won't take very long and then we'll get into it and we're probably gonna spend more time on the preamble that we did than on the story <laughs> itself entirely possible because the backup st- the information about it is more more probably more interesting and there's more to it than yeah. the story yeah all right so here we go thanos in the Final Flower, from Logan's Run number 6. Writer, Scott Edelman. Artist, Mike Zeck. Colors, Petra Goldberg. Letters by Susan Fox, with Jim Novak working on the splash page. Editor, Archie Goodwin. Cover art was by Paul Galassi and John Costanza. Original cover price, 30 cents. And it was cover dated June 1977, with an on-sale date of March 15th, 1977. You can find this story reprinted in Eclipso number 76, which is a 1981 French reprint, Silver Surfer, Rebirth of Thanos, paperback, which was published in both 2006 and 2010, Annihilation Classic, hardcover from 2008 or trade paperback from 2009, The Thanos Imperative Ignition One-Shot from 2010, Avengers vs. Thanos trade paperback 2013, Free Comic Book Day 2013, Marvel Masterworks, Captain Marvel Volume 6 from 2016, Marvel Gold, La Saga de Thanos, a 2018 Spanish reprint, and True Believers, Thanos the First, number one from 2018. I'm sure probably either the Thanos Imperative one shot, or if you bought the digital, you know, it was available digitally, or maybe the True Believers or the Marvel Masterworks. That's probably available digital, but Logan's run number six itself is not available digitally. At least not legally. (laughs) Thanos is on an unnamed planet, standing over the slain bodies of its priest kings. He holds in his hand their planet's most sacred relic, a flower, the last of its kind. In destroying the flower, he will destroy this planet's spirit. But before he can destroy it, Drax the Destroyer shows up. 
He attacks, but Thanos quickly gains the upper hand. Meanwhile, not realizing what they're about to walk into, two citizens of this world, a mother and her young daughter, make their final trek in a pilgrimage to see the flower and walk right into Thanos. The mother sees what Thanos is about to do to the flower and hits him, to no avail. He grabs them both and tosses them off the cliff. Drax sees this and has a flashback to when he was still Arthur Douglas and Thanos killed his own wife and daughter. Though, he doesn't realize this yet, but his daughter didn't die, remember? She became Moondragon. Drax is able to save the two, but that leaves Thanos alone and he destroys the flower and teleports away. Leaving Drax alone with those he saved, although they wish he hadn't bothered. Hey, do you like the 90s comic book tropes of a big beefy guy with a huge gun and big shoulder pads and lots of spikes and a bad attitude? Me either. Too narrow-minded. No subtlety. But I'll tell you what I do like. The character who started the whole trend. I'm Grant Richter. In 2018, I did a project where I detailed every adventure of the superhero known as Cable, 280 characters at a time, from 1993 to 2006. And now, it's time to start the whole thing at the beginning and take it to an audio format. So be sure to check out The Cable Guide at anchor.fm slash cableguide. I'll see you soon, because with Cable, it's always just a matter of time. That was synopsis. Told you it was fast. Yeah. All right. So the final flower. Uh, it's it's like a lot of those stories at the time. You know, this would have fit in with generic characters as like something in like a, a from DC, like uh, oh god, like any of their any of their horror science fiction titles. You know, Strange yeah. Adventures or right. uh, oh god, um, House of Secrets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that you mention it, even even like because the thing that 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 struck me most about the story as a whole is its sort of, I guess philosophical undertones i'll get more into that as we as we approach the final page of the story i'll get more into the philosophical undertone so all i'll say right now is that the insofar as a story this brief and uh relatively lightweight i guess you could call it um insofar as it can be said to have a theme at all that theme would have been right at home even in one of the uh, marvel's atlas era anthology comics like uh strange tales or journey into mystery oh yeah but you're right but the fact that 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 it is centered around specific characters in this case thanos and drax the destroyer uh makes it you know also very much of its time the 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 mid to late 70s and continuity wise i guess it kind of works at this point the last we saw drax was out searching for thanos Mm -hmm. yeah thanos was busy with his ultimate plan but i guess you know he could you know, take a stop to stomp the roses. Well, it, it's, you gotta take a it's, break for that every once in a while. Good mental health. I remember thinking at one point, um, uh, this would have been on page uh, three of the story, which it's so short. You know, I, I I feel like I don't need to like sort of adhere to a strict chronological order in addressing oh, God, the no. thoughts that I uh, the, the the thoughts that I had. Um, there's the point. Page three is is sort of the the climax if you will of the confrontation between thanos and drax specifically drax shows up he speechifies briefly and he's like i'm gonna I'm destroy you and thanos is like hi you couldn't destroy me if you tried but here's now so but here's the thing so uh drax basically says i exist only to see you die and for as long as i live your eventual death is a certainty 
Thanos makes the obvious rejoinder, then you shall live no longer, and he blasts Drax. And then Thanos uh, says, as entertainment, you fascinate me, but and as an antagonist, you have begun to bore me. And I thought to myself, okay, there's a little bit, something a little bit more serious going on, even in this brief vignette of a story. But that said, the relationship between uh, Drax and Thanos at this particular point and in this context is a little cartoony. It's a little bit Tom and Jerry or Roadrunner and Coyote. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. But that that does work, though, for them at this point, especially Drax. And it does make sense to use him then for this because you can do that. It doesn't matter what's going on. It's Drax is going to chase Thanos because, I mean, right. I know about this Let's time they have some Captain Marvel story. Oh, no, they will have some Captain Marvel stories later where he's angry over Thanos' death and goes to kill Captain Marvel for that. Mm-hmm. And spends a couple of issues just doing that because he's just angry because, you know, you killed him, so I have to kill you now. Yeah, like, which, which, yeah, well, I mean, Drax is an interesting character sometimes, but other times he's kind of not. Yeah. It depends on whether they remember to do any, you know, what they've done with him change-wise. You're right. right. But people then will just go back to the typical, Drax goes to kill Thanos, and that's it. Yeah, which is kind of what's going on here, which makes what happens later a little more interesting. But uh, again, uh, perhaps I can put that off and see if there's more going on. So page one strikes me. I already uh, made note of the of the art, artistic yes. aspect um, here. The other thing that makes that interests me is um, what we're looking at in this first panel, first page splash panel, um, which is we're looking at. Drax is in the middle of, I guess, this, we aren't meant to think too hard about where this sits in Thanos' personal uh, life story or continuity. Um, so I won't sit here and ponder, when was the last time we saw Thanos? What what is he up? What has he been up to since the last time well, we saw Well, what we could go with, though, real quick, we don't have to think about it too hard, mm-hmm. is the next time we see him will be in the annuals. Right. Right. When he's collected all of the, he's collected all the quote unquote soul gems. So you could yeah. just go with Sandals is out searching for a soul gem. Maybe he found one on this planet. Maybe he was a, uh, what's it called? A wild goose chase. Maybe he just found the clue to where to find another one. Maybe, or it just, it seems to me from what's presented here that he's just pursuing his apparent goal of domination for domination's sake, uh, conquest. And he's decided that this particular planet that he is attempting to conquer he is going to do so by crushing their spirit by demoralizing them by destroying that which they love the most this flower which is an object of reverence and spiritual veneration for them so i find that kind of interesting because it really paints him as a particularly ruthless character like he's not just going to come in here and um he's not just going to come in here like so many other we'll we'll put aside we'll put aside the bank robber type villains in marvel because marvel's always had several tiers of villains if you will you know you've got your your bank robber type villains like say the wrecking crew yeah right um and then you've got your conquest type villains like say dr doom but dr dooms always seem to just be like i will conquer by eliminating opposition fine thanos seems to take conquest a little more 
for lack of a better way to put it, spiritually. He even references it in his uh, speech bubble here on the splash page, where he says, a pity there is so little challenge in this most meaningful task. Like, to him, conquest has a, a meaning. Like, what he's doing, he's taking it seriously on an almost, like, emotional level. And that is, I think, sets him apart, makes him a little bit more of an individual compared to other Marvel villains. So here... He is a very dark character because he's not just conquering this planet, but he's doing so in a particularly cruel way. And I find that very interesting and immediately uh, immediately engaging on a storytelling level, not made no less engaging by the fact that he is standing over and clutching the robe of one of these three priest kings, as he calls them, that the the narration box makes clear he has not just vanquished them, he has not just defeated them, he murdered them. He killed them. And so there are three dead bodies at Thanos' feet that are dead because he made them dead. So he is killing, he is conquering, and he is conquering in a way designed to inflict maximum emotional as well as physical suffering on the planet he's victimizing and that is some pretty dark crap especially for a comic put out still in the era of the comics code authority oh yeah no it's been i've talked about this a bit on some other podcasts i've been on where Mm -hmm. people were asking me about the change in thanos that he's become more violent you know like they now make him more violent and bloodthirsty Mm -hmm. and you know and vicious and my thing is not really I don't think they have too much. I think they're allowed to show that mm-hmm. much more than they were back in the 70s. But I think in the 70s, they did everything they could to show he was. They just couldn't actually show it directly. Right. So, they had to like, skirt around it. Exactly. They could say, you know, in a flowery way that he murdered these people. But we're not going to see blood and guts all over. Now, you might now. Right. And they might not have the word balloon saying he did it. They just might have the blood and guts all over him and, you know, bodies all over. But same th- I think it's, I don't think it's changed since. He still was as vicious and cruel now as he was then. It's just easier for them to show him Agreed. doing it. Back then, you kind, of had to, you kind of had to look for it a bit more. And you had to read it a little closer to go, oh, that's what he did. Right. And that's why I find it so interesting that they are acknowledging so forthrightly, like it just says right here, by uh, the caretakers Thanos murdered, found peace in sacrificing their lives, attempting to protect the final flower. Like they just straight up acknowledge it in so many words. He murdered them. And that is a very straightforward kind of depiction of such a thing for this time. So, yeah, good stuff. He's like Rocket. Bam, mm-hmm. murdered you. Bam, murdered you. <laughs> I love Rocket. Um, okay, so he's here to destroy the flower, but Drax interrupts him. Of as course. As Drax will. Yeah, because that's what Drax does. Because Drax follows him around and chases him because he is, uh, well, he's got nothing better to do. Yeah, and that's the thing. is Like I, like I said before, Drax is a kind of a cartoonish character in that he is the Tom to Thanos' Jerry. He is the Wily Coyote to Thanos' Roadrunner. In that Drax <laughs> chases him endlessly, but futilely, and he never achieves, like, he never actually gets him. No. Other people do. Drax yes. never does. Well, 
Annihilation. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Yes, but I'm not there yet. 2008. Yes. And you're right. You know what? I'm reading this because, you know, even though it's only a short story, you sometimes just kind of read, go through the story. Mm-hmm. The second page, the first thing Thanos says, as soon as I smash this religious relic, this planet's opposition to me will wither. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a conquest thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. He wants he's not just conquering it like by force of arms, so to speak. He's conquering oh, it spiritually. And that is a that is a fascinating thing. He is looking for the most damage he can do, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual. He is looking to do the most damage to these people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And meanwhile, and this is interesting to me, so so now, you know, they show up and Drax, again, Drax is an idiot. I'm sorry, I'm not going to put, Drax is, like, Thanos is a serious figure with some depth to him. Like, we get a splash page like we did, and like I said, I can I can get all sorts of storytelling information out of the splash page like that, because Thanos, thanks to the work of Jim Starlin and, you know, and in this case, you know, Edelman and Zek are not doing a bad job of it here. Um, Thanos is a character with some depth to him, so you can receive some information out of anything that he's doing. Drax, not so much. Drax is a futile, idiotic kind of character. And that disdain that I have for him is not helped by his response to Thanos. Thanos, his reaction to Drax's arrival is fundamentally... Uh, oh God, you again! And <laughs> Drax responds like like some sort of meathead cosmic superhero frat boy. Uh, empty words, Thanos. Yet if we must speak, then let it be of power. And I'm like, no, you're a moron. Stop. <laughs> yeah, you're right though, because here's the thing, especially at this point, Thanos in universe. Obviously, you know, obviously they're all just characters, but in universe, Thanos is a person, horrible, twisted, and evil. But he's a person. Right. Drax, while using the soul of Arthur Douglas, is still basically a golem. Mm-hmm. He was created literally out of the earth with a you know, with one goal in life to kill Thanos. He is not gonna be that interesting. It's like, yeah, they kind of used the soul to like give it somewhat of a personality or brain, or maybe because they had to give it a brain, you know, they couldn't just make a brain up for it. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to give it some decent personality so it didn't do anything too some horrible in trying to kill Thanos. Animating but, force, yeah. Yeah, but it's still just a golem. He's mm-hmm. really not going to get much of a person... Obviously, he's not going to get any inter- any kind of um, interesting personality or anything mm-hmm. until after he comes back to life when he's the stupid Thrax. Because mm-hmm. then you see... It's almost like then it's like there's actually something going on there. There's more to him. I think when he's stupid Drax than he was in the original version. Okay. I could see and, that. I could see that. And then they've done stuff with him since and he has evolved a bit since then. But oh, yeah, absolutely. No, this original version of Drax, yeah, it's just a you know, a single minded golem. So mm-hmm. yeah, there is he's meant to be the quote unquote hero in a series that's about a villain. Right, exactly. So in a way he's the he's the foil rather than the protagonist, correct. Yeah. Right. But yeah, his and, role is just to chase whoever. It's like uh, one of those 70s TV shows like Incredible Hulk or even earlier The Fugitive. You know, right. those are the interesting characters. The guy chasing them, they're just meant to chase them. That's all Less they do. So. Right. And so like and to get back to what I was sort of introducing with this is um, Thanos and Drax get into their sort of, you know, silly confrontation up here. And meanwhile, right, 
the pilgrim. There are pilgrims coming because this is a sacred spot. Thanos has chosen. He's come here to destroy the 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 final flower, which is a sacred relic for this planet. So he's in this spot where the sacred relic is. So understandably, while they're having their silly confrontation, their fisticuffs or whatever, pilgrims are arriving to pray. And therein lies the crux of what happens in this story, because while they're fighting and, you know, speechifying, you know, I, I exist only to kill you. Hi, you are boring me. This this woman and her daughter uh, show up to Mm -hmm. uh, venerate the flower, to pray to the flower. And instead, they see this happening. The flower is on the ground, desecrated. And these two things these two aliens basically engaging in violence over it and this horrifies the mother horrifies the mother and the mother acts and the daughter is horrified by the mother acting no mother no he'll hurt you don't make him angry yeah and (laughs) then it's like i'm not that angry i just have nothing to do i just don't give a damn and he just Mm -hmm. tosses them to where the point that they bounce yeah, no, he, he, he just tosses them away. You, you can't, you, in order for me, you to anger me, I would have to care about you, and I don't. Therefore, I'm ju- I can just do this and not, you know, whatever. And he fl- flings them, and Drax sees this, and obviously he flashes back to his origin story, which interestingly enough, they call him here Arthur Sampson, not Arthur Douglas. Oh, yeah, they, they, I guess they screwed that up. Yeah, Archie Goodwin did not. Uh, Archie Goodwin was no Mark Gruenwald. Let's put it that way, of of both of of blessed memory, but just uh, saying. Yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, he like he's like, oh, this reminds me of my uh, personal pain, my personal tragedy. I cannot let it happen again. So he's like, never again. He leaps down to save them and gives Thanos, understandably, he gloats and understandably is time to squash with his boot, just destroy the final flower. Yep. And this sets up and then he disappears. Uh, I have not finished with you, Thanos. Um, I love Thanos. Man, what a diss here. Because uh, the destroyer, because Drax comes back with the two pilgrims that he saved, and he says, The destroyer is not yet finished with you, Thanos. And Thanos, this is such a great burn. He goes, oh, Destroyer, yeah. after letting me go so easily, you still dare to use that name? And I'm like, Good point, Thanos. Sick burn. Way to get, way to get old Arthur where he lives. I love it. And he laughs and he disappears. <laughs> And this sets up the, the the denouement here of the story, which is I was legit sitting here asking, great, Drax, you saved these two live, individual lives, but you saved them for what? Let's just for the sake of argument, just for this moment, take their faith, their worldview seriously. And their worldview was centered around the sacredness and reverence for this relic, this final flower that Drax, by saving their individual lives, failed to keep it from being destroyed. So he saved their lives, but from their point of view, for what? What exactly to to what end has he saved? He saved their lives, but emptied them at the same time. Yeah. See, the problem with this is it actually kind of would work better with someone else 
because here's the thing Drax beyond an obsession with getting Thanos and not being overtly vicious or uh, uncaring about others in the way mm-hmm. like I said overt developing overtly that's all he has now if this had been somebody like the Silver Surfer right you would definitely see a hundred percent why he would do that because that is theirs on the other hand you know, he's just there because his villain's there. He's not there to interact, you know, interfere with them. He's not there because of them. He's there because of Thanos. That's where Thanos happened to show up. Well, that's their view. Could he let them die for on his own because of his own views? Right. But with right. Drax, he really doesn't have those views either way. Set. It's not like you know, Spider-Man. We're like, yeah, Spidey's gonna save them no matter the, the one life, no matter no what. No one that's dies. In front of him. No one dies. Yeah. He's gonna save the guy in front of him no matter what. Um, other characters. Not saying that it's wrong. You know, right or wrong here, but for instance, I could maybe see Wolverine going after to save the flower. Right. Well, it's just it's a matter of perspective. It's like you it's know, like I'm saying, the character's effect. But I don't know if Drax really is enough of a character to have this work so well. Where he says, "What well, I have not been as evil as Thanos." It's almost it's like, well, would you? I don't know. You don't. Do you even know? Yeah. No. I. I agree, but this has always been – it's a trope. I'm not even going to denigrate it or, or, or like speak ill of it because I'm not judging it in that way. But I'm saying this is definitely a trope of superhero comics where the truly effective villain distracts the hero with the threat to individual lives and in that way is able to wreak much deeper – longer lasting more meaningful harm on the situation they're almost justified in viewing that short-sightedness if 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 you will allow me to use the term that short-sightedness on the part of the putative hero as a weakness because it is it is something that can be tactically exploited for the greater aim from the villain's point of view yeah expressly depicted here and so drax failed to protect the flower, failed to vanquish Thanos. So Drax basically, total failure, accomplished nothing here. And, um, yeah. yeah. Plus, I'm wondering, how strong are these aliens? Because, I mean, Thanos tosses them, and they bounce off the ground. So right. how, I'm just imagining Drax has flown off in the last panel, and then the next page, the two of them dying from internal injuries. That that is entirely yeah. We never we never find out, right? There's always the what happens next. I'm reminded of the uh, the end of the Princess Bride, where um, uh, oh the you, book you mean? Yeah, the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it wasn't really so much uh, said in the movie, was it? Uh, but no, in the book, yeah, where they ride off into the sunset on the horses, and it seems like a happy ending, and then the author feels the need to point out until Inigo's wounds reopened, and. You know, <laughs> Fezzik got lost and, yeah. you know, uh, uh, Wesley, uh, succumbed again to like the death injuries or whatever. And it's like, yeah, okay. It's, uh, you know, because you never do find out what happens after happily ever after. Right. Yeah. So my, my, my final thought here on this little five page, uh, vignette is, uh, first of all, impressive work, uh, as it, it Assuming that it was a trap for Edelman as well as Zach. We know it was a trap for Zach. Assuming it's a trap for Edelman as well. I must say uh, this is actually uh, pretty solid work. And uh, uh, they deserved whatever um, uh, rewards and work that they got as a result of this audition. And as as a piece of Thanos storytelling uh, for purposes of our podcast, it's not complete throwaway in that it does give us a... Um, 
valid and sort of useful just little little bit of further insight into just how awful and evil Thanos is and in what specific ways. Oh, so yeah. for that reason, it deserves its inclusion in the Thanos versus Avengers collection. It deserves its inclusion in any uh, series, any any uh, read of Thanos's 1970s appearances. No, agreed. And it's a good try. Like I said, it's a good story by the, work by the two of them. And even though it does have a bit of the trope, like you said, it is a five-page story. So most five-page stories, the better ones at least, it's going to be the trope. It just depends on how well they use it. Yeah, no, it gives us a little bit of meat to, to, to go along with the... with the Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, real quick, by the way, also on it, a bit of the... When they're fighting over this whole thing with the flower, not paying attention at all, I kind of mm-hmm. get a bit of a vibe of a Kingdom Come. Uh-huh. Interesting. You know, like, where they're all just... It's just like a gang war, kind of. Yeah. You know, that, superheroes and supervillains yeah. are just there to fight and ignoring what's going on around them. Exactly. Exactly. No, I could see that. I could see that. There's, there, there is something to be seen in here if you want to see it. it uh, it's not just a throwaway page filler. And so yeah. I'm for, I'm, I'm, I, I give it, I give it thumbs up for that reason. Exactly. Yeah. No, I agree. It, it make it fits in with the Thanos thing because here's the thing. At least since this came out in that time between the end of the Warlock series and when Starling came back to do the annuals, mm-hmm. it kind of fits. I mean, like we said, yes, Thanos is here to do conquest, but is he here to do conquest because that's what he's just doing that day? Is he here to do conquest because he's found or searching for one of those soul gems, which will come back up in the annual? Does it really matter? It it kind of works. Yeah. Continuity yeah, I- wise for them because. They weren't appearing anywhere else otherwise. No, exa- exactly. And it, like I like I pointed out on uh, uh, earlier, it does uh, reinforce the the notion that for Thanos, this is a somewhat more serious pursuit than it is for, uh, say, someone who's you know a little more conquest for conquest's sake, like like Doctor Doom. Yeah, uh, I wonder though if they would have been a more interesting story and maybe fit the character more if the Destroyer kept trying to fight Thanos instead of saving the people. Well, and then in fact, he might have, right. Well, I was gonna say, and in fact, the flower got destroyed anyway. Hmm. Well, that would have been like a triple failure on uh, uh, <laughs> on on Drax's part. Uh, at well, least yeah, Theory has but, a kind of excuse. Well, yeah, and that's the thing, though, because he's not really a superhero. Right. I mean, Drax really is more, especially like I say, he's a golem. He's more closer to like a a Punisher if a Punisher just wants to kill one person. Yeah, he's just a narrative force as opposed to a character. Yeah, but I could have also seen it written and still stay completely in tune with the character as shown so far if he just kept fighting Thanos and like that entire thing got destroyed in the fight. Right, right. That would that would have been a different way to go, but it would have made sense. Would have made yeah. sense. But still, so, not bad one. So not I a, enjoyed it. I I had fun reading it, and thank you for uh, making me reread it. I hadn't read it in a few years, so thank you for making me reread it, Al. Yeah, I don't think I have the original Logan's Run issue, but I did pick it up thanks to Marvel for doing those, some of those cheap reprints, mm-hmm. the dollar ones, mm-hmm. uh, and they're True Believers, Thanos the First, which reprints uh, the story from Iron Man 55, first Thanos, as well as this one. Mm-hmm. So for $1, not a bad deal. Cool. Well, alrighty then. All right. 
All right, so that's it for this time. So, Brian, anything you want, any final thoughts you want to say? Anything from what we talked about before or anything that popped in your head since about, you know, Logan's Run or 1970s sci-fi movies? Um, not especially. I mean, as you pointed out, Logan's Run, the movie, came out in 76 pre-Star Wars. And I always find the early to mid-70s, pre-Star Wars 70s, to be an interesting time for science fiction movies because you have sort of odd thing like sci-fi movies in the early to mid 70s were things like say uh soylent green mm. or um zardos or um <laughs> yeah i know right um or oh god what was that what was that one with bruce dern like uh silent running i think it was called um uh, i think i know what you're talking about but i cannot remember yeah so uh, the andromeda strain you know it's like it was an odd time for science fiction films not a bad thing but it's like it was between like the earlier uh b-movie stuff that would get like you know uh, saturday serial stuff that would get mocked on mst3k kind of science fiction movie and then star wars came along and then sci-fi movies became big blockbusters and then you had alien and then you had stuff like that it's like in between there you had this period where it was almost like science fiction was the place for the art film, almost. And that's kind of cool. And I think Logan's Run was kind of part of that. So it's interesting how we go from that down in here. We find ourselves doing a uh, Thanos vignette. Yeah. Oh, it was Silent Running. Mm -hmm. That's the movie name. And I forgot about this from before, but do you think... Because the Logan's Run TV series lasted 14 episodes, which is yep. probably about... 12 episodes longer than we th I thought it would have. <laughs> and I'm just curious, would Logan's run have done better as a comic than a TV show? Like, Depends. what if it lasted longer? It might have lasted longer, absolutely. It probably wouldn't have done better. Remember, the, control, the controlling party here was MGM. MGM was interested in a return on the investment of their licensing dollar so for m from mgm's point of view if you have the choice to uh do a television show or a comic book television shows going to generate more revenue therefore the television shows the way to go you're right in that the t comic book would have been longer lasting but i don't think longer lasting was what they were going for they had no vested interest in the intellectual health of the property they had an interest in its profitability Oh, no, that's true. No, and I'm not arguing because I don't know how long Logan's Run would have lasted as a comic to make whatever they made from the 14 episodes. Mm -hmm. I don't know how well it did. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know how that works. I don't know what the deal was. Did they get a bunch of money? The TV company made whatever episodes they were going to make. And if they made enough money, renegotiate next year to do season two. You know, in which case MGM's like, yeah, we got our money. We don't care if it lasts. We got more money than we planned. I have no idea. Yeah, but, no, yeah, I, I would have, could have, should have. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just saying is like as a cop, as a property, as a concept, as something in people's minds other than a 1970s cult movie. Mm -hmm. I do think it would have been it would have done better for it that way to have been the comic because it might have lasted a few years. Oh, it was obviously right. doing well enough. So, you know, we very possibly two years. Very possibly. It, yeah, no, no. Uh, a lot of interesting what ifs uh, there. But uh, under the circumstances. Um, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. Hey, Mike. Hey, Chris. What's up? I just got back from the comic store. What'd you get? Uh, some really good books. They had the latest issues of Saga and Batman, and I got the latest collection of Walking Dead. That's cool. I just got some in the mail, too. 
I got the latest collections in Adventures into the Unknown, The Spirit, and Young Romance. I've never heard of any of those. Oh, they're all from the Golden Age. The Golden Age? You've heard of the Golden Age of comics, right? Well, of course, but I've just never read that much from it. Oh, you're missing out. There's some great material here. And nowadays, they're really reprinting a lot of it. I tried it once or twice, but I never got into it. Oh, you should really try again, man. There are some amazing writers working in that era. Bill Finger, Gardner Fox, Joe Simon, and some of the best artists to ever work in the industry. Jack Kirby, Will Eisner, Joe Kubert. And it wasn't just about the superheroes then. They produced science fiction books, crime, romance, humor, all sorts of genres. Wow, you really love that stuff. You should do a podcast about it. You know, you're right. I should do a podcast, and you should do it with me. We can call it Comics in the Golden Age. And we could create a website for it, comicsinthegoldenage.com. And we could also publish episodes on iTunes and Stitcher and make a fan page to follow over on Facebook. Heck, we could even talk about the golden age of the modern age, also known as 90s Image Comics. No. No, Chris. No. So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher, and visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com. And now it's time for our Friends and Enemies segment of the show. So in case this is the first time you're listening to it, in our Friends and Enemies segment, we talk about other comics that had the same cover date as the main issue we talked about in this episode, which was June 1977. And we talk about the other comics that we've covered on the show already, and we're just checking in to see how they're doing at this point. But we don't do that alone, because where's the fun in that? So this time we have, from Comics in the Golden Age and the Kirby cast, we have Michael Lane. Michael, how are you doing today? Hey, Al. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Ah, thanks for being on. Especially since I have I had you on once before, but you weren't on this show. You were on my side show, which is now over. So need to have you on something that people can still find. <laughs> oh, thank you. So we are going to talk about 70, these comics from June 1977. So real quick, before we get started on that, what kind of experience do you have with these Bronze Age of comics? I mean, is this something that you... I mean, I know the answer, but just so people know, is this something you have a bit of experience with, or is this a brand new era for you? Well, I am. I'm definitely a huge fan of this era. I did not grow up reading in this era. I came into comics a little later in the early 80s. Well, like around 83, 84. But very, when I get into something, I get in too much. I go overboard. So it wasn't too long after collecting that I started digging into back issue bins. And I was a Marvel guy the first couple of years. So, you know, back then, you know, we saw 25 cent pins are pretty comic, 50 cent. And I used to get a lot of Bronze Age books out of that. I know. I remember. It's kind of a shock sometimes for me when I look at back issues of that period. I'm used to them being like a dollar or so. And I'm like, 10 bucks, 10, 15 bucks. Like, ah, oh, crap. I should have bought more of these then. Oh, yeah. And I remember, God, you remember actually seeing 10 for a dollar boxes? Yes. Those were a thing. Mm. Yes, saying. I used to get those at some conventions where I could see like 10 for a buck. It's like, ooh, I don't care what this is. <laughs> you know, I used to buy a ton of these Bronze Age books, and Avengers and Fantastic Four were two of my favorites. So these errors we're going to talk about on those two titles in particular are among my favorite. Um, some of the, There are going to be a few new things today, so I'm excited to talk about that. Obviously, I'm familiar with all the characters and the titles, but there's some of them where this particular era is a bit of a blind spot for me, which we'll get into. But still, you know, as a general rule, I love the Marvel Bronze Age era. And, I, I was, and it's not something I get to talk about on podcasts a lot because of the nature of what I, 
I cover. So I appreciate the chance to do it. Yeah, since you focus on usually the Golden Age, and that's well before most of these characters even existed. Except for Cap, of course. Yes. And, I mean, there is a Daredevil, but it's a completely different Daredevil. True. Oh, and I guess with the Vision, we'll get into that in a little. He's got a bit of Golden Age connection, too. So. Yeah, but the pet, yeah, there's two there's two versions that you could well, say I mean, are uh, the Vision. The original Human Torch that he, uh, at this era, was his origin. That he was the rebuilt Human Torch. Yeah, but I'm also thinking of the original Marvel Vision from time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was a Simon and Kirby creation, too. I think so. Because I know I covered a story of his a while back on the show because there was a death appearance in there. Yeah. And they had that really good, not to get too off topic, but they all appeared in that great issue of Avengers 97 during the Kree Squirrel War. Yep. Where they popped up. But, uh, but yeah, as a rule, I, I don't get to talk about Bronze Age stuff, so I was happy to have a chance to, to dive into some of it. Yeah, give you something Stretch your creative podcasting muscles a bit. Okay, everybody, so we are going to start today with Avengers number 160, The Trial, by Jim Shooter, George Perez, and Pablo Marcos, covered by George Perez, Joe Sinnott, and Irv Wantanabe. Wonder Man and the Vision are put on trial for their lives. Will their fellow teammates be able to bail them out of this one? So yeah, this is all about the Grim Reaper trying to prove which one is actually his brother, Wonder Man or the Vision. Yeah, this whole like perverted family dynamic that got going on was a, a theme they revisited a lot in those days in the Avengers. I mean, even long before Wonder Man even came back from the dead, Grim Reaper was showing up trying to, you know, either manipulate or entice the vision, thinking he was like all that was left of his brother. So it was this is actually kind of a funny issue in that regard to see his reaction now that his real brother is back and him trying to accept that and figure out whether it's really him or not. Yeah, the, the nice thing is here, neither one of them really want him to be their brother anymore. It's like, you're a murderous no. psycho. Um, yeah, there's a line, and you've way crossed over it. Yeah, I did like how they both pushed him away and, and basically stood up to him and tried to make it as clear as possible. You know, though he didn't give up with Simon for a while in the issue. But this whole, I mean, it's like I was talking about with the eras. This is really in the midst of a good era for the Avengers, really starting when Simon came back from the dead as a, what did they call zombies in Marvel? Oh, Zuvambe or something like, I don't know how to pronounce it, but. Yeah, whatever they're, zombie, when he came back leading up through, you know, this is followed by the Korvac saga and then, you know, John Byrne comes on. So you have like an era of George Perez art followed by John Byrne art. But it's weird. It's like this all starts, like you said, it's a family thing and this whole. (laughs) Yeah. I say the whole Wanda Vision Simon thing goes in even weirder places down the road in the future. So there's a lot of craziness in that family. Oh yeah, but I'm also saying it's like it's actually funny for the Avengers being like the professional team one, you know, as opposed to like it's not like the Fantastic Four, which is about fam- a family, 100, percent or even the X Men, which is about like a found family. The Avengers is supposed to be like more or less like the Justice League. Like, you know, these are the best people, and yet the Avengers actually has this whole big family thing here i mean we have a grim reaper and his brother simon you know wonder man and wonder man's brain was used to form the visions so they're technically brothers he's married to wanda who's pietro's sister and also (laughs) at this point magneto's kids so you have that there too plus vision's father quote-unquote is ultron who's created by hank pym with hank pym's you know brain patterns married to the wasp creates jacosta it's like this is like a you know, you could take like 15 characters and that's like, all you know, in the Avengers thing. And that's a whole family thing right there. 
and that's one hell of a family reunion. <laughs> that is that was one of the things I always liked about the Avengers is it did sort of start off as the best of kind of Marvels, their big heroes who didn't otherwise have you know kind of another home, but then you immediately got pretty quickly this cast of characters who were the core Avengers, and you would have Cap and Thor and Iron Man come and go and such. But for a long time, you know, Vision, Scarlet Witch, Hawkeye. Quicksilver, they were always there. They would come and go a little, but there was always kind of a core group. And those are the ones where the writers could really, because they can't change Captain America. They can't change no. Thor in the title, but they can change these characters and really kind of evolve their, and grow their characters. And they they were what made the Avengers. And this issue is actually a good example because it's interesting that, you know, the Grim Reaper is not the most threatening villain. And he's got to take down the whole team in this issue. But they did, it's noticeable that within the first page or two, they took thor iron man and captain america right out of the story so you're left with beast and panther and wanda and simon and simon's pretty powerful but he's not at his best at this point he's still recovering yeah and i also give a little uh slack to simon because unlike let's say thor yeah he was gonna ones, come and hmm? oh, no sorry go on you i thought you stopped but i think the connection just got bad again <laughs> oh sorry but it's more believable he could take down you know these guys then try to take down Thor. <laughs> well, yeah, but I always give Simon a little slack at this point because he's not used to having this kind of power. So he's very, he's a lot easier to take on awares. Unlike Thor, who's used to being, you know, the per Thor, he's been Thor for thousands of years. He, oh, you know, yeah. he has a clue what he's doing. Simon's just like, was, you know, a couple years ago, his point of view, he was just a guy. And now he's yeah, as powerful as Thor. He's like, wait, what? Yeah, there's kind of an ongoing theme in this era, the Simon's insecurity that gets touched on a lot of these stories. And it really doesn't kind of resolve itself really up until I think they get into the early 200s of the Avengers. Through that, he's always son of uncertain, I'm sure of himself. And he feels he fails in one or two battles along the way because he doesn't quite know how to use it. So that's that was an important part of his character at the time. Yeah, but you're right. They don't they do this more of the Avengers than they did with Justice League, because Justice League up until I would say up until the JLI era was really all about the big characters that had their own books already. You know, I mean, who were the ones that they had in the Justice League that, up until them that didn't have their own books, or at least before Detroit? You know, I mean, what, uh, Elongated Man, Red Tornado? You know, not really the ones they really spent a lot of time with. You know, actually, so I was wrong. It wasn't Justice League International. It was Justice League Detroit is when they really started kind of focusing on characters who didn't have their own books. Yeah, I always felt Justice League didn't really quite have the personal interaction. And when they did, it felt a little more forced to me with the Avengers, you know, where when you had Vision and Wanda, you know, you really had a relationship grow over time. And you, you kind of felt a little more personal touch than you did when you would see the Justice League interacting in one of their titles. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like I said, Detroit, I think, is when they started. Now, it depends on your point of view of how well they did for that. Some people are like, eh, and some people love it. But you could definitely say JLI era is definitely when they did it well. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, Fire and Ice, Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, Guy Gardner. Yeah, that's a really good – that's a good example. That is a very similar dynamic than what we had. I mean, there was more humor there, and they were different characters. But you, when you finally did have a core family of Justice League people that the writers could really change and focus on and, and evolve like they could Vision and Scarlet Witch and the Avengers. Exactly. I think that's enough for Avengers, so now it's Daredevil, so that's your turn. Okay, we're going to be talking about Daredevil 146, titled Duel, which was written by Jim Shooter and drawn by Gil Kane and Jim Mooney. 
The cover is by Gil Kane, Dave Cochran, and either John Costanza or Dan Crispy. Is that how you pronounce his name? Crisp Crespi? I go Crespi, but I'm not sure. Okay, Crespi on lettering. In this one, Bullseye makes a televised threat against Daredevil, and our hero takes the bait. The only real problem? Daredevil's radar senses are on the fritz after a golf ball to the head. (laughs) So I guess Daredevil's never been hit in the head before. Because this is the first time it seems like all of a sudden a blow to the head is affecting his senses. Kind of like the 70s thing of, you know, oh, he got hit on the head. They have amnesia or they're evil now. Oh, that would have been perfect if he'd had ran around with amnesia for 10 issues after getting hit with a golf ball. Mm. Isn't that going to be much later, like 100 issues later or 200 issues later when he's running around the yellow costume again? Oh, yeah. It's only a matter of time. Yeah. But yeah, Daredevil is a weird thing at this point. Yeah, this is one of the ones that was a blind spot for me going in because Daredevil, I've read plenty of Daredevil, but I've tended to read what are considered the big runs. Frank Miller... Mm-hmm. Bendis, Brubaker, you know, Wade. I've read a lot of the Silver Age where um, Gene Colan was drawing them. But, you know, this this is a period where I really have never read any issues and don't know much about it. So it's interesting, though, if you only read Daredevil during the heavy periods, to go back and read a story where it's really in more of just a typical Bronze Age superhero kind of thing. Oh, yeah. They're planting well, the seeds with Bullseye and stuff, but this is just much more of, you know, this could be Spider-Man or any other Bronze Age hero in the role. Oh, yeah, he's very much like a poor man Spider-Man. You know, he still has the jokes, and it's very, it's a similar, it's very, it feels like a Spider-Man-esque to me. But, yeah, definitely very much just a typical Bronze Age hero. I mean, last episode, the Daredevil issue we covered had him fighting uh, a tiger. Because <laughs> there was some guy who lives on a penthouse in Manhattan, and it was rich, and he likes the Tarzan thing. So him and his wife dress up like bargain basement Kazar and Shana, and they have a tiger and a rhino on their penthouse i like the story it was fine it was just you know just typical another bronze age story yeah this is like a like like you said it's a kind of a i mean it's not horrible but it's kind of a weak period for daredevil it's after the whole daredevil and black widow where they did something different and he moved this the west coast and they kind of just have him back in new york now just kind of doing random just you know finding regular supervillains. now i would i will give credit to the art though because i am a big fan of gil kane and I always love I'll never be unhappy reading the story drawn by Gil Kane. So there's one thing I did really enjoy about this issue was the art. No, the art was really good. And I mean, they did still story wise, they still took on. They still they'll later on keep up the whole bullseye has a really big problem with Daredevil thing. So that's something that still will continue. At least it's not like everything from this era gets like, dropped and ignored 100 percent. True. Yeah. yeah. It's just at this period, it kind of feels like Daredevil really doesn't have like much of a point. Like later on when Miller starts and that it feels like there's a purpose. Yeah, it's funny because probably Daredevil of all the heroes Marvel has, he arguably may have had the highest number of really great runs where he's just had creators come in and just knock it out of the park. But you wouldn't know reading this issue that (laughs) that's in his future. (laughs) Yeah. You know, not to insult him. Like you said, it's perfectly serviceable. But like you were saying earlier, it was, you know, you wouldn't you would never guess what they would do with this character later on. Yeah. Yeah. It just feels like at this point they're like, well, he's just a superhero. You know, later on, it feels like he kind of has a point. You know, he's the hero of Hell's Kitchen. He fights the king. You know, he's there against the kingpin and his corruption. Whatever it is you're doing, it just kind of feel like there's a, you know, that's his theme. That's his that's his raison d'etre. Here it's like, well, he's a superhero. 
and he's a superhero. Like, all right, good enough. Fantastic Four, number 183, Battleground, the Baxter Building, by Bill Mantlo, script, Jim Shooter, Roger Stern, Ralph Macchio, not the Karate Kid, Len Wein, Roger Slifer, plot, Sal Busima and Joe Sinnott, art, covered by George Perez and Joe Sinnott. It's a melee of miscreants when the Brute and the Scavenger go head-to-head. Well, the FF, along with allies Thundra, Tigra, and the Impossible Man, manage to battle both beasts and complete their task in the negative zone? That is a lot of people. <laughs> it's both a lot of creators and a lot of cast members at the same time. Yeah, it's like, well, we, I guess they figured we need a creator for each person in the character. This is one of the ones we're covering that I'm probably mo- most familiar with. So I was just curious before we talk about it, how familiar are you with this era of the FS? Not too much beyond maybe having heard some episodes of Fantastic Cast and doing this this segment, you know, for previous issues, but it's not all consecutive. Because, you know, okay. the book, even when I was doing the book regularly, it wasn't always coming out monthly. It was like bi-monthly. And, you know, it's been a couple months since the last issue we did anyway. So... The reason I was asking is they have in this, there was about a 30 or 40 issue period here where there was a lot of recurring guest stars, Thunder and Tiger obviously are there. You have mm-hmm. Luke Cage is one for a while and you have a lot of kind of recurring villains as well. The Frightful Four was there. You have the Brute because Counter Earth, which I know you, you're all about Counter Earth with Warlock. That had been a thing a while ago. And then, yeah, like 175 with Galactus. Yeah, and then it went away and came back, and the group became recurring. And so I love this period, but I've also read it several times. So I was curious because it's the opposite for me with some of the other things we're covering. But for this one, how hard was it for you to follow this issue? Because I, it's kind of going landing in the middle of the story. Well, I mean, thankfully, this is still Bronze Age, which means we have to have full recaps. <laughs> True. So I knew what was going I can pretty much tell what was going on. I mean, without having read the issues, I had a pretty good idea of what okay. was happening and who was involved. I mean, maybe not the exact specifics of how did Tiger get involved in this, but Tiger was there. Good enough. Yeah. I don't need I'm to glad. know every yeah. minute, minute detail. And I like that group of uh, Sue and Tiger and Thundra and the Impossible Man. That was a fun team. Well, I think one of the strengths of this era was that they did have kind of recurring supporting casts like that, even though I got to be honest, I'm not normally a fan of the Impossible Man, like at all. And I kind of don't, I'm not a big fan of the impish characters like Mix Pitalik and yeah. Batmite. And, and, but I didn't mind him in this era. I thought they actually made, although in this issue, it's interesting because the Impossible Man basically could have cured this whole storyline with snapping his fingers but they purposely removed him in like a few pages in where he just, yeah. I'm tired of fighting. I'm just going to, I'm this sick is of this. Boring. Yeah. He literally just walked off in disgust because he just didn't want to deal with this. Yeah. Which it's kind of silly, but at the same time, really the only way you can have a story like this continue the way it did is if you take a character like that off the table. Yeah. And with his person, the way they do his personality, it's very easy to take him off the table. He's, he's very much, Ooh, what's that shiny object? <laughs> piece of candy. But, yeah. Ooh, piece of candy. Ooh, a piece of candy. Ooh, a piece of candy. Ooh, a piece of candy. I like Tigra, and Thundra is always fun. Oh, she's yeah. a fun character that needs more play. So she, I like the fact that she does pop up a lot in the series during this time period. Yeah, and it's funny because this issue she didn't really interact with Ben, but 
but a lot of her you know strength comes from her interactions with Ben as a character. So it was actually yeah. kind of refreshing in this one. She was more with Sue and Tiger and them, and didn't really kind of showed how good her character could be that they didn't yeah replay that for the hundredth time. And of course, we have the brute, which we've already covered his first appearances back in Warlock, the original Warlock series, since mm-hmm. he's evil Reed Richards or well, Counter Earth Reed Richards. And, and I, I will say, because you've covered it a lot, I'm a fan of Counter Earth. I like the whole concept. I like everything about it, and I loved it the way they use it during this FF period. So I was happy to see it play a role. Yeah, I I, I still miss Professor Von Doom. He was so much fun. Still being Doc, it just Doctor Who mask, but with the lab coat and regular <laughs> clothes. It was great. It's like, well, why do you have the mask, dude? <laughs> it's like, should he just be unmasked? But because he's Doom. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that makes sense. Well, actually, my favorite part. It's kind of a joke thing, but it, it did happen. Was the Mad Thinker? Because it's it felt like a kind of a bit of a joke they they would do on Fantastic Cast or on Make Ours Marvel, where they're talking <laughs> about like the Mad Thinker just kind of plans stuff, but then there's always a X factor, and he always forgets it. And once it, it's like it's kind of a joke, but that's literally what happened here. He's walks around the corner going, "Everything will be ready." Oh crap! <laughs> it's yeah, like, I, dude, yeah. sorry, go on. I did notice that in when Reed was explaining everything to Johnny and Ben in the negative zone and explaining why he teamed up with the Nihilists is their perspective seemed to be that they thought this was all the master plan of the mad thinker and that the Android was going to be used by the mad thinker to take over the mutated Android that had been exposed to the cosmic rod. But when the Android gets back and he's fighting them, he clearly has no clue what's going on. And no. the Mad Thinker is way out of his depth and trying to catch up. No, the Mad Thinker, I realized something. The Mad Thinker should not be a supervillain. <laughs> the Mad Thinker is better at one of two things. Uh, I forget if we talk about this. Have, did you read New Warriors when it first came out? No, New Warriors is a blind spot for me. I've read an occasional issue, but I don't know much about this series. Because there's a issue, like in the first... 10 issues with the mad thinker and he's not an enemy of theirs. He's basically hired to like, I think hired at it. I forget if it's his own. I think it was hired though to get information on them. And he basically is able to get information and actually contacts them as some ways to kind of like, to get the information too. And also gives them some information on themselves. And he's great that way. And he's also would be perfect as a, I don't want not the, okay. It's not the, it's not the comic version, but it's the Batman, the animated series version of clock King. If you remember that character. Oh yeah, I do. Yeah. That he's perfect. He'd be perfect for setting up these crimes with normal situations. <laughs> you know, we're talking regular bank guards and police and things like that. Once you start bringing in negative zone shenanigans <laughs> and stretchy people and counter earth variants that are basically the Hulk. It's like, he's, it's like, there's too many X factors for him to work in. And he's just, it's, he's basically just guessing. Yeah. It's like, that's not your element. You're better here. Don't go here. It'd probably work out perfectly fine in our real world where you don't have negative zone and superheroes and the Hulk dropping in out of nowhere. But in the Marvel Universe, he's clearly out of his depth. Yeah. It's like, Neymar, Neymar, don't go swimming in the pool of alcohol. <laughs> or, you know, Don't be a firefighter. Go help ships that are sinking. <laughs> you are not good dealing with fire. Anyway, so that was Fantastic Four. By the great Poseidon himself, a swim is just what I need to revive my strength. Ah! That's not water. It's alcohol drying me out, drawing the moisture from my body. 
Okay, so the next one up is Hulk, two, Incredible Hulk, excuse me, number 212, Crushed by the Constrictor by Lynn Ween, Sal Buscema, and Ernie Chan. Cover is by Rick Buckler, Ernie Chan, and John Costanza. Can the Hulk save his friend Jim Wilson from the Constrictor? Meanwhile, Betty is gone in a flash, but has a new look and a new life. You know, one interesting thing about this, when you mentioned we were going to cover this, is I went all the way through reading this issue and didn't realize until afterwards that this is the first appearance of the Constrictor. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Who? Well, not not the biggest of characters. My biggest association of him is uh, during the Christopher Priest run in Deadpool when he was Deadpool's roommate. My biggest is, have you ever read the um, Dan Slott thing series? Um, I the... think some of that, at least. Okay, it was interesting because Nighthawk was, showed up and Constrictor showed up and Basically, Nighthawk, you know, the, do you know the defenders in Nighthawk from the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, Constrictor had come into a lot of money from the She-Hulk series because he basically got beat up by Hercules and made him a lot of money in a lawsuit. And Nighthawk convinced him that, you know, he convinced him to go good and turn good because he basically was like, you know, we're rich. We don't need money. It's a lot more fun to be a superhero. People love you. <laughs> They'll treat you as a hero. And for was, a while, yeah. the constrictor reformed after that. So that was oh, wow. my like big exposure to him. But oh, that's I, fun. One thing about this series is this issue was this interesting example to me about how when a villain is introduced, they really have to be a threat to the main character. And here, he has to be a threat to the Hulk. Yeah. And my experience with the constrictor is not seeing him as much of a threat to the Hulk. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, you have adamantium coils, but do you really have the strength to actually? You know, you can get it around the Hulk, and yeah, if you're lucky, like you'll whip him in the eye. But do you really have the strength to constrict enough on the Hulk, on the Hulk that you're gonna like suffocate him or something? Um, I'm gonna go with no, no. So I'm sure for people who read this at the time, the Constrictor was new. He was a real threat because he does hold his own. But if you're like us and you knew the Constrictor later on, it's kind of yeah. hard to see him as being a really viable threat to the Incredible Hulk. And they try and play him off that way. He's like, oh, you, oh, the Hulk. Well, I, this should be entertaining to take you out. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, for what we're seeing here, though, you're just a guy who kills people, like regular people for money. You should be like, the Hulk? Oh, crap. That should be your response. <laughs> Plus, it's, I, did, I really haven't read many, Rick, um, I was going to say Rick Jones, um, Jim Wilson issues, so... Jim Wilson, he's an interesting character. Do you know what ultimately happens? That I read because I was reading the Peter David run. So yeah. I do know his final fate. And I know, like, for instance, he's related to, he's related to uh, the Falcon. Yeah. But I always thought I that was very Roy Thomasy to have him turn out to be related to, uh, to the Falcon. Because, you know, if you have a last name, you have to be related to someone else. Or... Yeah. Well, yeah, it's very Roy Thomas. It's very the same as... Um, if an all-star squadron, he makes a robot man sidekick related to Bruce, uh, Dick Grayson because their last name's Grayson. Yeah. And that's it. Exactly. But the, one thing about this issue is, did you ever get why, and this may be on me, BMS, did you get why the constrictor hired the guy to go after Jim Wilson in the first place? I'm assuming there's, well, I mean, the constrictor's hired to go after Jim. That guy just works for the constrictor, but the constrictor is the one being contracted to kill Jim. I'm assuming it, there's some plot going on that has not either was in the issue before or will be revealed in an issue or two since. Yeah, I have vague recollection, recollections about, is it, it's called a conglomerate? What is it called? Uh, maybe. He, he works, the constrictor,
during this time, and this is a vague memory, so I'm sure some people are going to yell at their, you know. Write in and tell us why we're wrong. But the constrictor, I think, was working for something called the conglomerate, I think, at this time period. And he shows up in other, he shows up in Captain America later. And he's kind of their agent. So I, in the back of my mind, I was wondering when I read this, if the conglomerate had anything to do with what the, because he may not, may have nothing to do with it. But I also, it could be like you said, it just was an ongoing whole thing. I have no idea. Yeah. It, but I, I just have a, fun. yeah, I think the constrictor showed up working for them in other Marvel comics around this time. So it's possible. Yeah. 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 I wasn't too worried about that because I figured eh, that either was explained the issue before or be explained an issue two since. Who knows if I'm going to get a chance to read that for this thing. I mean, a lot of these series, I do want to go back and do the whole reading. But for now, while I'm doing it this way, I kind of want to just read the issues that I'm doing for the episodes. It's more fun that way to kind of like jump four issues later and be like, okay, what's going on now? Yeah. The Hulk one is in kind of the middle ground for me because the Avengers and FF, I really remember. The Hulk, I'm actually pretty sure I've read this era. But I just have very my memory is like so vague because it's been like twenty plus thirty years since I've read it, so I don't know what was going on. So it's somewhere buried down there, but I have it's, no idea. It's <laughs> buried in that memory. Yeah. Next up, we have Iron Man number ninety nine at the mercy of the Mandarin by Bill Mantlo, George Tusca, and Mike Esposito, cover by Sal Buscema, Al Milgram, and Jod Costanza. It's doomsday for the Armored Avenger for the Mandarin has returned, and Iron Man is at his mercy, plus Madame Mask, an unlikely ally. So, this was interesting. Uh, well, the Mandarin's new costume, I don't know. It's, eh, I guess it's not as stereotypical as it was before, so I guess that's not a bad thing. Not his best look, I thought. No, but it's better than being the stereotype look, you know, looking one. True. I, one thing I was interested in, I, I thought was interesting was this. So Michael O'Brien is in the Iron Man armor. He's the one that's actually trapped. Mm-hmm. Iron Man shows up there, rescues him, and basically just takes off his armor right there. It's like, aren't this is the seventies? Aren't you supposed to like do everything you can to keep your identity from being known? Well, yeah, especially since we know from the two thousands, Iron Man finally revealing his identity was fairly huge thing, you yeah. know, and motivated by the films. But you know, well, the whole storyline with O'Brien, it seemed like. He was blaming Stark for his brother's death, right? That was his... Oh, yeah. That had been going on for a while because when we... A couple episodes ago, we covered Iron Man 88 to 91. And he was blaming him then. He was trying to get revenge on him then. So that's been going on for like a year in this book. Maybe longer. (laughs) And his brother, he wore the armor too at one point, right? His brother... I believe so, yeah. Because he said, your "Your brother knew this too. That Iron Man and Tony Stark are the same person. (gasps) And okay. I'm pretty certain Michael O'Brien is still alive, or at least was alive up until oh. recently. He was guardsman. He was oh, like yeah. The... That, oh, you're right. He was a guardsman. Yeah. So they don't even go with the trope of he's going to find out the identity because he's going to die soon. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, you find out Superman's identity. It's like, well, okay, let's see. Either I'm going to die or I'm going to lose my memory or I'm going to go to the fandom zone or something. Something horrible is going to happen. <laughs> I guess what they were going for was just that since maybe Stark had a relationship with his brother and by default, you know, gave him some connection to him that maybe he felt like a guilt or something and that yeah. motivated him. I didn't necessarily feel that because it happened so quickly in the story that I didn't, it didn't convey that to me, but I'm just trying to kind of, you know, no prize it as to why Stark would after 
because you know i i this is the kind of another one that's a blind spot for me for this era of tony but i read a lot of silver age iron man in very early bronze age and he protected his identity he went through amazingly complicated convoluted things to do so it did strike me as odd that he would just whip off because they were like in a cave or something and he just yeah mom was like yeah, yeah. Take it, it, off. Also, it makes sense i mean in the situation they're in he's like look i got you off the rocket i gotta stop that rocket so, and i need the better armor you're in so we gotta switch real quick and it's like boom 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 it's like it made sense yeah i just was surprised they did that in the set you know they did that because usually it's like we gotta protect the identity but and it yeah. seemed to work because michael did seem to come along and he would seem to change his heart on tony and realize that tony was actually a hero and he might have been yeah. wrong about so it helped. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, Iron Man for this period is, except for what I've done for the show, is kind of a blind spot for me because I really didn't start buying Iron Man. <laughs> You're going to laugh. Guess which period I started reading Iron Man. No, oh, God. Not when Tony was reborn as a teenager. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Oh, I just got shivers. <laughs> I read the Teen Tony issues. Uh, I picked up like the first issue, I think, maybe two of the Heroes Reborn. <laughs> and, then I, and then, you know, that was it. just one or two of them. That was it. <laughs> sorry, but the whole, I actually, I had abandoned Iron Man as a title before then, but I was reading the Avengers around that time period. So I was getting kind of the, the fallout and even the Avengers had way gone downhill. Oh God. Yeah. I was just, I, I have a real attachment to them. So I'm one of those people that I stick with it far longer than I should. And I just remember the whole concept just made my brain hurt. No, the whole crossing is just makes no sense. I'm uh, sorry. Ten years ago, Iron Man was not a teenager, while Peter Parker was basically six, but the Fantastic <laughs> Four are going in their rocket at the same time. That's uh, impossible. But that's another. Know, yeah, one little. I will say the Avengers in that period get kind of a bad rap because in the early leather jacket period, they're actually a really great title. Oh no, they, they, that is really good. I mean, I'm not saying to- Teen Tony was great. It was all right. Uh, you know, go back well, to that real quick. Girl, Teen Tony, I, I dropped. Before we get. Sorry. Yeah. But I was going to say, Teen Tony, like, yeah, that was all right. I'm going to say I did read it, but it wasn't great. You know, it was good when I, when I kept, re- I started reading it again when Heroes Return started, when Kurt Busiak was writing it. I think it was Sean Chen doing the art. That yeah. was really good. And that, oh, yeah, that was really great. That I read Iron, uh, Iron Man for at least several years then. But yeah. Brown Jacket Avengers, I would say to like 375 is good. Yeah. For the most part. Once that story's over, it's like, you could stop reading. Yeah, it goes to crap in a major way very quickly. But up until then, when you have Dane Whitman and Hercules and, you know, um, oh, God. um, Crystal and Cersei. Yeah, exactly. It's great for a while. And then, yeah, it devolves. But anyways, one thing I want to say about this Iron Man issue, though, before we move on. It's funny because you picked an issue that's in between two of my favorite Iron Man covers. In Iron Man 98, have you ever seen the cover that's got Sunfire fighting Iron Man? Oh, I think I do know about that. That's right, because Sunfire is in the beginning of this issue. Yeah, Sunfire is on the cover, Iron Man. Gil Kane and Dave Cochran did it. And the reason that cover, I have to mention it. Have you ever heard of the Mighty Marvel pinup book from 1978? That sounds vaguely familiar. It's a great, I was lucky enough to get it in the eighties for cheap at some mail order thing. And it's probably 11 by 17 size pinups. And that was one of them, that cover image of Iron Man fighting Sunfire. And I barely knew who Sunfire was at that point. I think I knew he had some X-Men connection, 
and that cover, that poster, that cover was on my wall as a teenager. I'm and I still at, have that pinup now. I'm looking at that one right now. I just, I just found the cover. So, and then I guess issue 100 is the other one. Yeah. 100 for not quite as much, but I still like it because it's a Jim Starlin cover and because it's a hundredth anniversary. Oh yeah. I've seen that great, one before. Yeah. Great image of him with a stone 100 behind him for the anniversary. So not about this issue, but I just wanted to mention it because it's surrounded by two of my favorite yeah. Iron Man images. Maybe it would make more sense to have the hundred in iron. <laughs> well, he is breaking an iron think, bar. Yeah, he's breaking an iron bar. So there is an iron motif there to tie it into the... I don't know why the hell he's breaking the iron bar, but he is breaking the iron bar. <laughs> okay, next up is Marvel premiere number 36, The Devil's Music by Roy Thomas, Don Glutt, Jim Craig, and Dave Hunt. The cover to this issue is by Gil Kane, Joe Sinnott, and Gaspar Saladino. Continuing on from 3D Man's last issue, he now has to stop Vince Rivers' music from brainwashing all teenagers. Little did he know the scrolls were behind it. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, this was... Okay. <laughs> this was one I always have wanted to like more than I have. Because I like the idea of 3D Man, and I like the idea of him going back. Because at this time, Roy Thomas was doing the Invaders. Yeah, it was you know silver seventies, and he wanted to go back and do a nineteen fifties Marvel hero. Because fifties Marvel doesn't have a lot of superheroes. They have Marvel Boy, but they were doing Jungle Comics, War Comics, yeah. And they tried to bring back you know Cap and Submariner and Human Torch yeah. didn't last long. So he felt like he had to inject something to make some, something. And going with the 3D thing was perfect for the era because 3D, you know, comes and goes as fads. And it was a big thing in the 50s. Oh, yeah. It's uh, Back to the Future, even. You got one of Biff's guys is wearing the 3D glasses. Exactly. So I, I like the idea of it. The story itself was always kind of... It was... It goes with... Because I read the uh, little column he wrote in there about why he's doing it. Because that was like, you know, what he said. It's like, this is my teenage years the thing that I look back at always. I actually liked one thing he said, one way he phrased it in there, which is like, it said, um, if you had a good t- child, you know, if you, if you had good experiences with it, you always will look back at your time at that time period between you were like 11 and 20 very fondly. But I like that. Like he actually was like going like, it's not just my, you know, not everyone's had that experience. He's like, look, if you had a good time, if, you, if things were good for you, like if you had a crappy time, if things were bad, you're not going to look back on it. But if you were happy with it, I just, that was just a little, it was a little bit of like self-reflection that didn't always happen back then. Like people just assumed everyone had the same experience always. And he's like, I know not everyone had a good time in their teenage years, but if you did, I was like, good yeah, for you, Roy. Inter- it's interesting coming from him too, because so much of his writing, particularly that era, was nostalgia based yeah. and bringing back older things. So it's that kind of a self-awareness was nice to see. But this one felt a little too, the fact that he's like, Everything in there is like, yes, I understand. This is the 50s. Okay, yes, you're pointing out it's the 50s. Yes, this is a 50s thing. I understand your point. Like, I felt like he did more in this issue than he did, like, half the, half the issues of All-Star Squadron I read <laughs> to show that it's the 40s. Yeah, yeah. It's well, like, definitely, yeah. Between the musicians, the gangs, it was very, like, kind of a happy days dialed up to 11 kind of vibe to it. The one thing I did like was the ending. That it wasn't... I mean, spoilers for anyone who wants to read it, but suck it up. It wasn't the musician that was the scroll. Apparently, he was just an egotistical jerk 
that didn't want to stop playing, but it looks like it was his manager that was the one that was actually causing the prop, the scroll, not him. So I was like, all right, that's a nice little twist. That was good. One thing that has always given me a fondness for this character, though, which has nothing to do with this issue, is how he led to things later. And in particular, did you ever read the what if issue of what if the Avengers were founded in the 1950s? Yeah, because that's basically became the basis for the Ages of Atlas. Exactly. Well, yeah. well, the first run of Ages of Atlas. I know there's a current one, Ages of Atlas, now that I'm not sure if has anything con- connection with it. It has a loose connection of being of the person who runs it, Jimmy Woo. Okay. And, yeah, but otherwise, the hero, most of the heroes are different in their Asian country base. But the yeah, the originals was now crop. But I always, as a kid, long before Agent of Atlas, I read that What If issue, and of course, all the other characters actually existed in Marvel in the fifties. They just weren't together. Yeah, he was the only one who was inserted. So when that gave birth to Agents of Atlas later, the reason they excluded 3D Man was because he wasn't the one who was actually existed. But after two or three, because Agents of Atlas had a few short-lived series. Yeah, and eventually, I read all of them. Yeah, they did eventually bring you know 3D Man in later on, or at least the current... Triathlon. Exactly, thank you. I was trying I to remember he, that name. I figured if he was calling himself 3D Man at that point or not, but... I think... I want to say by the time he joined Agents of Atlas, he had been. But I just, because I love, I love the Agents of Atlas series. Oh, that was such a good series. Yeah, it was. And so, and because I love that what if issue, I have a real fondness for that, this character, even if his initial Marvel premiere series wasn't the best, you know, read, I still will like him out of that nostalgia. You know, I'm trying to remember now, I'm not sure if I read the what if issue or if I'm thinking maybe of the Avengers Forever issue that has them in it. Yes, you're right. I forgot about that because they brought that because Busiak based uh, one of the issues on that. I think they even yeah. made the cover of that one, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. I think that I I think that was my introduction to them. Whether I read the what if or not, I can't remember. But that was my introduction to them was that Avengers Forever issue. Yes, thank you. I can't believe I forgot that because I remember when Avengers Forever came out, which I another one I just loved. I was so excited to see them pop up in that and get yeah. to play a role. Not a huge role, but at least get, you know, an they, issue. They had an issue. Pop up. Yeah. Hey, half the reason I'm buying that Black Panther and the Ages of Wakanda is because Gorilla Man's in it. Me too. That's one of the reasons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, oh, that's probably way more than people talk about 3D Man in a while. So let's see. Hardly anything about the actual issue, but hey. Yeah. So we talked about him. All right, up next, Marvel Team-Up number 58, Panic on Pier 1, by Chris Claremont, Sal Buscema, Pablo Marcos, and Dave Cockrum. Apparently, he did the airplanes on page 15. (laughs) (laughs) Cover by, well, from what I looked up, it's not sure who did the cover, but definitely also Al Milgram and Irving Watanabe. The Trapster is out for revenge against a ghostwriter, but his plan only calls for fighting one superhero, not two. Without his fightful friends, the Trapster is in big trouble versus Johnny Blaze and Spider-Man. Yeah, the Trapster. <laughs> Pace pot, Pete. <laughs> it's like, uh, I-, I can deal with him as part of the Frightful Four, but I don't know if I can really <laughs> take him seriously on his own. No, it's especially against Spider-Man and Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider. <laughs> it's like, seriously. Yeah. Seriously. Although I did think Pete, at the end, Pete was a little hard on the Ghost Rider because... You know, he got so mad at Ghost Rider at the end about how he freaked out, you know, the Trapster, but Trapster was about to blow up that boat and kill all those people, so I didn't think necessarily scaring the hell out of him was that bad, you know? No, no, but that's Spider-Man. That makes sense. 
True. You're right. And I do like, I, I'm a big fan of Marvel team up. None of the stories are terribly deep. They had, they couldn't be, they couldn't really alter the characters, but I did love team up books in the seventies. So I did love whatever excuse they came up with to get the two heroes. And I like stories like this where they didn't have to fight each other first. They actually yeah. met up and got along and worked together. And yeah. there was tension at the end, but they didn't fight and then have to team up. They actually teamed up in the beginning. This actually, one thing that struck out to me, it's like, wait, everyone knows he's Ghost Rider? Like, there's no identity. Like, everyone knew. It was actually in that newspaper article that was captured read, Johnny Blaze, Ghost Rider. I was wondering that too. Do you, have you read the 70s Ghost Rider series? Not much of it. Uh, the Mostly what I read was when the 90s Ghost Rider series came out, they did a reprint series called The Original Ghost Rider Rides Again. It was only 14. It only ran seven issues because it covered the last... 14 issues of the Ghost Rider series. Okay. Had two issues per issue, two, two issues of reprint in the, two original issues in the re, each reprint issue. So they only were, you know, they started with like 68, went to 81. Okay. Cause so, I knew it's, when you mentioned that, I was wondering the same thing because I, I remember good, I read the champion series in the seventies of which he was a member. Yeah. And I saw him in a lot of guest series, but I never read the actual Ghost Rider series. other than one or two issues of Marvel Spotlight. And uh, I think that he first appeared in. And I was a big fan of the 90s one. So it shocked me that everyone, like you said, everyone seemed to know that he was Ghost Rider. I had no idea that that was a thing. It's like, that's not a secret. The fact that he's possessed by, or maybe he's making it look like Ghost Rider just a costume he puts on. I don't know. That would make sense. Although, you know, it's also, I wonder how much this jives with the continuity of the regular yeah. series too. They weren't always the best back then of keeping. You know, but you think his identity being publicly known would be something. I mean, Yes, they were not always the best at keeping up like things like that, but let's be fair. Chris Claremont is a different writer than Bob Haney. Very so true. <laughs> if this was Brave and the Bold and it's Batman and anyone, and they're like, oh, we all know that person is this, is this person. Well, yeah, you're like, that's Bob Haney. But oh, yeah, Bob Haney would have Ghost Rider running to daycare center on the weekends and not exactly. have unusual. Bob Haney would have Superman's identity no, publicly known there and not even think about it. And whoever's writing Superman is like, it's Bob Haney, don't worry about it. But, you know, here, I would be surprised if they were that off. You're right, you're right. Clear, Chris Claremont would be much more careful than... No disrespect for Bob Haney, who I absolutely love. Oh, I love you're Bob right. Haney. You're right. <laughs> no, Bob Haney, the fact that makes Bob Haney great is that he doesn't... It's not like he minorly does these things. No. No, Bob Haney goes full tilt across that line as fast as possible and as far as he can get. And that's the great thing about Bob Haney is it's just so crazy. And it's like, it's great. You're just like, this is just too much fun. It's like, I don't care that it makes no sense. Yeah. He is the essence of having no F's to give yeah. <laughs> what he's so writing. It's like, he's just having a great time. Who cares? Let's just, just enjoy it. Let's go for the ride. So I, I guess know. this was in continuity for Ghost Rider, whether, like you said, whether that was a disguise he used first thing. And that's what people thought it was and or yeah, whatever was going know. on. All right, next up is Thor number 260, The Vicious and the Valiant by Lynn Wein, Walt Simonson, and Tony DeZuniga. The cover is by Walt Simonson, Joe Sennett, and Dan Crespi. Why Balder and Carnilla battle the British executioner and the beautiful enchantress, Thor joins the fray, fighting against his brother-in-arms. Wow. I <laughs> did not know when I, we were going to read this issue that this is basically the first Walt Simonson on Thor. I know. And this is one, when I mentioned having a few blind spots, this is very similar to Daredevil because I love Thor, 
but my experience with Thor is kind of Jack Kirby Thor, then Walt Simonson Thor, then JMS, then Jan Jurgens Thor, then JMS Thor, and then Jason Aaron Thor. I have very little experience in between, so this is a blind spot. And I had no idea that we were going to be getting Walt Simonson art on this. Yeah, not this early. I mean, obviously he was not the regular Thor person, I'm assuming, for long, but still, wow. Um, it's interesting because his I've found at least his figure work is not what we would get, grow to understand being the Walt Simonson style. But when it came to the tech, the ships, the space stuff, that was very Kirby-esque and Walt Simonson-esque. That was yeah. very similar to what we would get later on his traditional runs. Well, I'm assuming the figure work is more to do with Tony DiZaniga than Walt Simonson. Because, I mean, going back even earlier than this, if you ever read the uh, from DC first issue special, yes, the, the Dr. Fate issue, you know, you can definitely see, obviously, you could look at that and go, that's Simonson. It's early Simonson, but it's Simonson. And this one definitely is more the finisher. You're, you're right, because also the, I'm thinking of the, the Manhunter backups he did yes. as well. Same thing, what you just said on Dr. Fate. You could see that. So you're right. Dizaniga probably um, overpowered him a little on those, those inks. But yeah. and not also, that it was bad. It was still no. perfect. And it also depends on how much he actually did do for like breakdowns or whatever. How loose, was, how loose were they? True. You know, how much of the finishing did he finish? It, was he finishing the last third? Was he finishing two thirds? Three quarters? You know, who knows? Yeah. They don't, you know, they don't specify. But... Interesting. I mean, they actually gave. I, I don't. I don't remember seeing Balder and uh, Cornilla too much. So it's kind of fun when they let the other characters play around. The story I found okay. It was a little overwhelming at times because there was a lot going on, and I, you know, the, all the big characters are there. Especially, I, I always I have a soft spot for the Executioner because of how Simonson mm-hmm. used him in the Ragnarok story in the '80s, which was really a touching kind of yes. moment. So I oh, like yeah. seeing him, even though he's more. Um, more of his earlier cartoonish version here. And I did, um, I enjoyed it. It didn't blow me away. I kind of felt like it was, it was fine. It was entertaining, but I, I did feel a little like another one where I'm kind of lumped in the middle of an ongoing storyline. Well, that's what's going to happen. They do NASCAR story. Cause I mean, it makes sense. And it's probably a good reason to keep Thor on earth a lot is because when he's in Asgard, unless you're sending him on a quest or something, where it's like, Thor, go do this thing. They're all heroes. And they're all gods. It's not like, I mean, yeah, he's more powerful than the rest of them, but it's not like the thing with uh, Rick Jones, you know, where like maybe Rick Jones can fight a little bit, but still the thing is a thing. Like he's nowhere in his class. Like these guys are at least a lot closer to Thor's class than any, most of the people are would be because they're all gods and they're all warriors. So it's like, uh, yeah, you know, when you're doing Asgard thing, you kind of have to almost make it like an ensemble book. Because or find some way to get rid of them because it's like they're gonna they're not gonna stand around and be like oh help us save us yeah now I I, I will say that this era of Thor has been on my list of something to go back and read and kind of fill in the blanks between when Kirby left and Simonson and I still want to do that you know when I was reading I was I was thinking oh and I I will say I have read the Eternal stories when they showed up in between that I've not read yeah but Most of these early ones I've not read. Yeah, before and after the, between Kirby and the Eternals showing up, I've read hardly anything. And then after the Eternals and then up to Simonson, I've hardly read anything. And I've meant to, and I still want to after this. There was enough there that I thought, oh, I bet if I go back and read kind of the whole era, it'd probably be a, a, an interesting, entertaining read. Because it was fun, but I just kind of felt a little, you know, a little bit yeah. lost. But I just realized something we were talking about him. The Executioner, 
his motivation and what he's doing is basically very much like Thanos. I mean, just replace Enchantress of Death. <laughs> I mean, they're basically the same thing. The only and difference is the Enchantress is more leading him on than Death is at this point. Death is just kind of there, and Thanos is like running towards her. Like, I'll do the, all these things for you. And she's like, all right, if you want it, that's cool. Enchantress is more, come follow me, and I, I'm, sure I'll, I'm sure we'll hook up eventually. <laughs> oh, you know, he's like, okay. That poor guy. She did that a long time, too, because even back in the 60s, in the early Thor, and then when they were in the Masters of Evil in the first, like, dozen or so issues of the Avengers, she was doing yes. the same thing to the guy, and she dragged him along for, God, decades before. And oh, yeah. even leading right up to when he kind of turned during the Simonson run, that was his thing. But, yeah, that's kind of, like, the main difference, I think, is that, like, she's leading him on, and as far as I can tell, at least as of now, death is not leading Thanos on. No, that's all on Thanos. Yeah, that's all his issues. I do remember a few times that Thanos having tantrums when he didn't, when he would, no matter what he would do, Death didn't, still didn't seem to have any interest in him. It's like, well, she doesn't have to, dude. Go find someone else. <laughs> it is kind of an egomaniac thing for him because Death has been around for literally billions and billions, you know, twelve, four, fifteen, however old the universe is. Yeah, and this force of nature. Why should she give a for this one dude who has a crush on her as powerful as he may be now who's only existed for like 100 years or so in the grand scheme of time yeah well the only thing is we're not sure exactly how long he existed but it can't be longer than a few thousand years yeah at best you know yeah i don't know what the the whole like they're an eternal spinoff group right like the titans his here's the thing i'm not sure how full eternal he is but i mean his father is you know, you know, Azurus, the fa- you know, the guy who's in charge of the Eternals yeah. or used to be. That's his brother, mentor. Yeah, brother. that's what I meant. They so, spun off from the Eternals. Yeah, right? they left. I mean, it's, I just meant like I didn't mean like spin off as in like they're so, like not like spin off like the Inhumans are spin offs of the Kree. You know, it's you know in that no, way. But, I mean, like, yeah, they're. But I'm not sure about his mo- about the mother. Okay, if she was an Eternal or not. Okay. So I'm not sure if she is. So him and Star Fox might be half Eternals. But even so, they still might mean like they live for a couple thousand years, maybe. Who knows? It is after seeing how Thanos developed in all the movies and how big he became, it is funny to look at and think Star Fox is his brother. <laughs> it's just they're so different. <laughs> yeah. That's what makes them wacky brothers. Star Fox is a lover. He's not a fighter. Yeah. And Thanos is, well, Thanos. Genocidal maniac. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. You know, every family has their problems. Use that as your barometer, at least. Like, look, my kid isn't a homicidal, isn't you know, a genocidal maniac. I, I did pretty good. <laughs> I did better than that guy mentored. He's thousands of years old. All right, so that was our segment. So before we finish up, Mike, tell people where they can find you. Okay, well, the main thing is I am part of the Comics in the Golden Age podcast. I co-host that with my cousin Chris, although he's been in hiatus for a while now. And, and we've kind of toned down. We're more on a quarterly schedule. It, well, I'm on a quarterly schedule that I plan to pick that up again in the future. And I am uh, very active, remain very active on Twitter. The Twitter ID is comics in the GA for comics in the golden age, of course. So please, you know, give it a follow. I'd love to interact with you online. I try to stay very active on there talking about comics, celebrating creators and such. I also have the Kirby cast, which is also on hiatus now, but that is at Kirby cast on Twitter. And uh, I also am a movie fan and I have a few Twitter accounts devoted to some famous actors and actresses I like. I have um, a Twitter account devoted to Myrna Loy, which Woo-hoo. is 
at Myrna Loy Love. And I also have a Twitter account devoted to James Gardner, who I'm a big fan of, at Files Gardner. So you can check me out there. And so I'd love to interact with anyone online on those accounts if you're a fan of any of those people or, you know, Jack Kirby or Comics in the Golden Age. So that's where you can find me. All right. Well, thanks again for being on this, Mike. Thank you, Al. I really appreciate it. I had fun. Oh, definitely. These are always fun to do. I am Connor from the House of L. And I am Ray from the House of Zod. We are two of the many, many survivors of Krypton's destruction, and we have made our home in Australia, and dare I say have become Australians, for better or worse. But we have also decided to read Superman comics, read Superman books, watch Superman shows, cartoons, movies, basically everything Superman, and from an Australian perspective as well. Whether you're a seasoned fan, like me, or whether you are coming in fresh, wide-eyed, and wanting to learn more like me, then this podcast is for you. Join us for our bi-weekly adventures available on all good podcast catches. So just search for Last Sons of Krypton, a Superman podcast. We'll be coming to you from Australia or some cosmic dimension, wherever we are that week. Up, 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 up and, and away. away. You just heard a promo for the show Last Sons of Krypton, and that show is part of the Collective Network. This show is as well part of the Collective Network, in case you were wondering. So the Collective is a sort of network, basically. It's a, just a, really just a group of like-minded podcasters who want to network in a more traditional sense of just helping each other out. Become a repository for ideas, crossovers, and potential guest appearances. So if you're liking Resurrections... Please be sure to check out some of the other ones. There's, of course, Last Sons of Krypton, and there'll be a link for where you can find other collective shows as well in the show notes. Okay, let's get into our feedback. And this time we have feedback from episode 113, Earworms, where we covered Iron Man 88 to 91 with Paul Spataro and Bill Robinson from Back to the Bins, as well as Fantastic Four 172 with Herman Lowe from Long Box of Darkness and Into the Weird. So first of all, we have an email. So thank you, David Spothorf. And this came in on May 25th. It's entitled Collection Nostalgia. Hi, Al. Glad to have you back in my pod feed. This episode really touches my nostalgia buttons. In the 1970s, finding American comics in the newsagents was a pretty random affair. Often, I'd find issues on spinner racks in holiday resorts in North Wales as a kid. Never contemporary issues, usually random assortments that were two or three years old. But years later, I think about those random few dozen issues I owned with a special fondness. Two of those issues were Iron Man 92 and Fantastic Four 174, neither of which you were speaking about in this episode. But they are relevant. That Iron Man story resolved a query that you were discussing as it relied on Tony having kept some old suits in storage after the weak underwear armor was destroyed. Okay. Fantastic Four 174 was, of course, part of the Galactus on Counter-Earth story. It was concentrating on side stories rather than action on Counter-Earth itself, but it did cement one idea into my young mind. I always did think of the High Evolutionary as a good guy. I guess it was that final panel of High Evolutionary as a giant striding through the air to challenge Galactus. So even now, after Evolutionary War and other such stories, 
I still categorize High Evolutionary as antagonist with good intentions rather than bad guy. Breaking in the email real quick, I can see that. And for me, my first experience with him was the Evolutionary War. So he really wasn't that great a guy then. And of course, if we're reading the whole Warlock series, he's definitely not that great a guy. But if you're coming in with that story, I can definitely see why that would imprint on you. All right, back to the email. I remember the old days of collecting back issues. Before the internet, when you had to scour the back issue bins at comic shops, conventions, and collector fairs. Did you ever have a particular collecting mission? Mine was a complete set of Captain Marvel. Marvel, of course. There was always a special thrill when I ever discovered a Starlin issue. I've had different uh, missions over time. Uh, one of them, one of the earlier ones, was getting a reissue power pack. Once I started reading stuff, uh, New Mutants was another earlier one that I definitely was trying to collect all of. All right, back to David. I also had the full set of both Warlock series, including Premiere and Strange Tales. The Starlin issues were pretty easy to come by, but the first series took some searching. Everywhere seemed to have issue 5 for some reason, but 6 to 8 were pretty tough. I had them all in a bound volume. That combination of Kane and Starlin under one cover is a joy, spoiled only by the awful Hulk stories in between. Cheers, David. Okay, David, that's pretty cool. I would love to see a picture of what that looks like, your bound volume. And I'm just curious, are you when you say the awful Hulk issues, are you just talking about the Hulk 176 to 178? Or are you also talking about the earlier Hulk 153? Or did you even not include that, since it kind of barely does have Adam in it? Anyway, thank you, David, for e the email. I really always... I to say I really appreciate it, but actually I always appreciate it when you email. And if anyone else wants to email in, you can send an email. I will read it on the air. Resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. And now let's get back to the rest of our feedback. On Facebook, the post about that episode was liked and shared by Joe Sedano, Paul Spataro, Derek William Crabb, Gene Hendricks, Dale Russell, Chris Lydon, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Bill Baer, Hal Jordan, Jerry Green, Robert Lewis, and Caleb Alexander McKenzie. On Twitter, the post was liked and shared by We Are Venomaniacs Podcast, The Dr. Squee Show, General Hannibal Metallic, Doc Strange, Crime Wave, Adeline Rising Podcast, Paul Miles, Into the Night, Connor McKenna, Last Sons of Krypton, Ghost Rider Podcast, Cloak and Dagger Podcast, Viet Huynh, Toys and Sometimes Jokes, Tim Price, The Podcrasher, Lime Link, Black Hole Sun, Into the Weird, W. Kev, A Centrist in a Critical Social Justice World, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, Oof, Chaos Dreaming, William Bozard, Lee Broughton, Rocchio RV, Terry Shallot, Andres Antonio Perez, Jet Jaguar, Karen Walker, Non-Obstant 200, Jeff Durham, Comics in the Golden Age, Bill, Stranger Boy, Marvel Universe Online, and Longbox of Darkness. If you want to hear your name said, don't forget. Follow us on Twitter, at AdamThanosPod. If you like and share the posts about the new episode... I will say your name here. You can also talk to us on there. We'll talk all kinds of comics on Twitter. Um, we're on Facebook. Just type in Adam Warlock or Thanos in the search box and you'll see our Facebook page pop up. Don't forget our Tumblr page, resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. And finally, if you want to hear more with me, I am, remember, I am on the L-E-G-I-O-N-P-O-D-Cast, which is covering the DC sci-fi series Legion, or L period, E period, G period, I period, O period, M period, 89. And since the last time this show has had an episode out, 
We have had three episodes of that podcast out, episodes five, six, and seven, and you can go find those on the page for the Legion Substitute Podcasters, and there will be a link in the show notes for that. All right. Well, I guess that's it. Anything else you have to say or want to uh, tell people where to go? Not not at this time. As always, I will just say uh, follow me on uh, Twitter at, at KidChiron. Uh, I'm always trying to entertain the public uh, with the witty observations about nerdy things. And uh, other than that, I got, uh, I'll just say uh, thanks for listening, and I look forward to doing this again soon. Yep. Thanks again, Brian, for being on, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended, or happening, or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peaceloveproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page.